Bereavement Room is a podcast for our community, faith and culture, featuring representative voices from across the UK. And I am your host, Kolsima Ali. Hello, my name's Shireen Kerr and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm James Boston and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, I'm Bafo Ababio and you're listening to Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Jameer Amaraji, and you listen to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Akwa, and you're listening to Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I'm Jalal Amir, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I'm Chelsea Coombson, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello, my name is Laura Marvin, and you are listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hello, I'm Marvis Stewart, and you are listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, I am Myra Khan, and you are listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi folks, welcome back to Bereavement Room Podcast. I am your host, Kolsima Ali. This is the final episode of Series 2. It's also almost the end of year 2020. In this episode, I'm going to be wrapping up two seasons of Bereavement Room. I'll be reading out a very heartfelt letter that was submitted to me, comments that I've received over the past year, and all of your questions. I'm going to do a little Q&A. A massive thank you to everyone that submitted questions. I'm very grateful to you. Thank you so much. Now that we're in the middle of the holidays, I've got almost two weeks off work. I'm not working, quite relaxed distracted by a lot of Netflix, you know, that is a distraction. I don't think it's even an interest is to kill time. Eating good food, I've been cooking a lot, definitely eating good good food and I feel a lot better. I have been sleeping more, but I think during the holidays I think most people do sleep more. Um and of course, you know, we're going into tears and further lockdowns and restrictions and rumours about that. That hasn't really ensued so much of my anxiety because I'm quarantined alone, so it cannot get any worse. And it's not like I have very vulnerable family members left to be worried about. So this pandemic isn't impacting me the way that maybe it would have if my dad was alive, for example. So yeah, just a a, a little update from me and how I'm doing. But right now I feel really good and and in a sort of acceptance phase, I guess, of what this year was or is. It is really because I think what we've experienced this year is is set to continue somewhat into next year, um, it seems. So that was just a a little update from me, but I hope you're keeping well and I hope that you enjoy today's very reflective episode. So to kick it off, we are going to talk about a little Instagram post that I posted back in August that lost me a lot of followers. It was controversial, it seems. So back in August, I posted, just because the NHS is free, it doesn't mean it's free of inequalities and disparities. For some odd reason, because the NHS is free, people think it's this hallelujah institution, but it's not. It's massively flawed, plagued with medical negligence, error, disparities, inequalities and racism, and God knows what else. I know that not just my story, but the story of so many families across the UK and some of my guests go unheard or gaslighted when navigating the NHS. I'm not going to sing their praises and please don't bring your party politics here. There isn't enough accountability within NHS leadership trusts. There never has been, regardless. Something to think about. This post caused a bit of a storm, I guess you could say, because yes, I lost a lot of followers. Okay, boohoo. Um, but I'm not on Instagram for the followers. I'm, I'm on Instagram to seek truth uh, and also help people find my podcast. Uh, but other people I get, you're there for the following, each to their own. Um, as soon as I posted this, it, it gained a lot of traction and a lot of people came forward with their comments. So I'm going to read out some of the comments without revealing their names because what they've had to say is very powerful and many of them have had courage 
to share their own experiences very, very briefly with me, which, you know, it's sad to say I wasn't shocked by it or surprised by it, but I'm just horrified that it continues. But again, uh, if you don't know, our NHS pays out 2.4 billion a year in compensation. So I'm gonna kick off with the first comment. Thank you for sharing these words. Bold, brave, and a massive relief for people experiencing this. 100%, my sister was treated for schizophrenia, which in fact turned out to be a brain tumor. She died in 2018. Heartbreaking, just, just the wrong, you know, this isn't a potential for misdiagnosis. This is, it is, misdiagnosis just is a thing and people aren't talking about it. Uh, and when they are, we're, we're shunned for talking about it. I'm going to reveal the name of this person. My, my heart goes out to you and and your sister who who died because of a misdiagnosis. Here's the next comment. Speak. It fails people severely on a daily basis, but we don't talk about that part. Exactly, but folk won't talk about it because it will reflect badly on the entire service. If it doesn't work, we must talk about it, not brush it under the carpet, I responded to to this follower and listener. Agreed, very much so. The abuse that goes on at the hands of the system is wild and people need to be made aware. Just because a service is free doesn't make it good, perfect or untouchable. Powerful words. So, so powerful. It doesn't make it good, perfect or untouchable. There's something severely wrong, isn't it? When the abuse that does go on within the system just carries on. And I don't think it's just about healthcare education. It's really about poor accountability and people just, oh, well, I still get my salary. I go home. I'm insured. It's all good. Totally agree. The NHS failed my dad so badly. Negligence of the highest form, just unbelievable. In fact, the way he was treated and his subsequent decline because of this makes me so angry, but they are treated like heroes. Well, this is the year 2020 where NHS staff have been treated like heroes. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to be the most unpopular person reading out these comments, but this is real life impact. You can't, People are not going to ignore this when their loved ones have died because of the hands of poor quality of care and negligence. And it, yeah, I get it. The bigger picture, it's about funding and party politics. But there is also incompetence and poor hiring decisions. I responded to this lady and I said, I'm so sorry. I didn't clap for them. Um, that's that's their job quite frankly hero narrative is getting boring now I wish they would stop and I think the media doesn't really help because it, it plays on people's minds it feeds into people's minds and thought processes and way of thinking uh, they tend to send out these messages of of, of hero and saviour and uh, they t- t- tend to blur I think the message a little bit so, so it doesn't really help and you do sometimes just feel like you're alone in your experience so this later lady further commented and when they don't do their jobs as they should it causes our loved ones to die but they get away with it i hear you i hear you my love i hear you i've got another comment here that i want to read out and she's a whistleblower i believe because she actually works in the nhs She responded, I work in the NHS and my dad died because of its negligence and my family has many more stories of where care was poor. I think sharing stories of negligence and poor experience is vital. It's possible to be grateful for and love something and also be annoyed at it and want to improve it. It's not an either or. We can hold conflicting ideas and feelings about the NHS. Oh, oh, that comment. That comment really hits deep. And this is from what I believe someone that works in the NHS that is, I think, a whistleblower. I'm not going to reveal her name. And 
I subsequently have uh, set up a, a Zoom support group for NHS negligence. Actually, it's a pilot uh, that begins in February and quite a few people have signed up. So whistleblowers that are listening, you're very welcome. I do vet everyone, but you are very welcome to join the group to, to listen and share. So if you're interested, please DM me on social media or on Instagram um, or hit the email button and, and write to me and I'll respond to you. But I have to say, this this lady that wrote that comment, um, very, very brave, very brave, and a uh, very courageous thing to say. And I, I mean, it's important to get some backup from people that work in the NHS, because she's absolutely right. You can criticise something that you love. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Clearly, something's wrong here. We need to address it. So that's some of the amazing comments that I have received of support but also lost many many followers um over time I think also because I have a certain voice that I don't take any shit let's be real and I will I will fight back that I feel sometimes people are afraid to maybe uh, address with me certain things um but I'm happy to indulge in a little bit of discussion and debate because uh, this isn't about agreeing to disagreeing or respectfully disagreeing or anything like that. This is about discussing something that is important and um, seeing people's different viewpoints and just listening to learn. It's, it, this isn't an agree to disagree, okay, you know, wash our hands, bye situation at all. I really hate that remark. So if you want to chat to me about it, send me your thoughts. It, you don't have to. You know, you, you can have conflicting ideas, just like that lady that is a whistleblower commented. Yeah, you can. And I think I'll always have conflicting feelings about the National Health Service, but do I have to put up with it any longer? As you all know from the last episode, I spoke about my dad and the National Health Service in length. I'm not saying I haven't had some good experiences of the National Health Service, but it's taken many bad experiences for me to have a good experience because I've learned to speak up. I've learned to articulate myself in a certain way. Um, it has required knowledge and education, listening to podcasts, asking questions, um, challenging medical health professionals. Because guess what? If you don't ask those questions when you're in the GP surgery or at the hospital, when you're chatting to the consultant, even if they know and they're consciously aware that you haven't addressed that, uh, that they will not bring it up unless you do, because guess what? They've only got, what, 10, 15 minutes in, in, in the room with you. So it's, it's not really their priority, is it? Is it? So that kind of brings me to a close on some of the comments. I can't go through all of them. I've received many, and I just want you to know that I am super, super grateful to all of you that have taken time to write to me and DM me and send love and support. It it just hasn't been the easiest of years. And, you know, this is a, a subject matter that needs to be discussed, even in 2020, when our NHS staff are uh, heroes, as, as people like to say. I did not stand at my door clapping I can tell you that now this is a reminder that you can find bereavement room on social media the handle is at bereavement room on twitter and instagram we now move on to a heartfelt letter that was submitted to me just before the holiday break Bereavement Room gave me a safe, judgment-free space to speak about my experiences with grief as a young person of colour. Growing up in an institutionally white and predominantly neoliberal education system. After losing my grandmother at the age of 12 and then my mother to cancer at the age of 15, I felt a lot of conflicting emotions due to my role in my family, my personal disconnect from emotions altogether, and also the South Asian cultural pressure of academic success. When my grandmother passed away, it was a shock to us all. She did suffer from diabetes and she was a woman who often took on more responsibility than she should have had to bear. A few months before she passed, she had visited a GP complaining of chest pain. The GP, Asian but race 
of the specific GP isn't always relevant, made an assumption and told her that it was most likely gastric or indigestion issues. Following the post-mortem of her death, we discovered that she had been suffering from angina, a type of chest pain caused by reduced blood flow to the heart, often manifesting in chest tightness. This was particularly upsetting information to receive, as it meant that my grandmother was correct in identifying her symptoms. However, due to the negligence of the GP, she had died a completely preventable death. Looking back, it does not make sense to focus all my anger on that specific GP, as he was educated from a healthcare perspective, which we now know has been proven to be systemically racist against brown and black patients. Doctors are often told that due to loud culture from certain diasporas, black and brown patients are likely to be exaggerating their pain. These things are being taught as indisputable fact in universities and can be traced back to a classist and racist board of those in the healthcare profession at a time where public health did not aim to be as inclusive as it attempts to be today. As a child, I remember my mother pushing me to always be firm in my feelings. This meant things like not underplaying my symptoms at the doctors. I feel on some level she must have known that institutions will judge what you say due to the colour of your skin, consciously or not. At the time, I didn't quite understand it and I thought she was being dramatic and embarrassing, but now I realise why she fought so hard. My mother had suffered from breast cancer back in the early 90s, had a lump me and tried to forget about the fact that she was so sick for such a long time. She had my brother to raise, who was a toddler at the time. I think she tried to forget because she did not want to be defined by an illness, and also because it must have been an extremely traumatic experience. However, I think it's important to address these things, as they make us who we are. Her cancer re-emerged around 2007 when I was 10 years old. Again, she did not tell me or my brother out of fear that it could interfere with our performance at school and she didn't want to scare us. I think she must have been the most scared of all. She would always try to imply things whenever she spoke to me and I did have to accompany her on hospital appointments too. So I realised what was happening without her having to directly say it. I do remember that she would always ask her consultants lots of questions to gain a more informed understanding. She would often seek second or third opinions from consultants with different backgrounds, private, NHS, white or non-white. Again, I think she was smart enough to understand that at the end of the day, doctors are humans and no human is perfect. We all make mistakes and there is a lot of potential to be misdiagnosed because of underlying prejudice or time resource constraints. My family was incredibly fortunate to be privileged enough to afford to look into different avenues, but not all people of colour are afforded this advantage. In my opinion, this is why so many of us are forced to suffer. Loss greatly affects an individual's journey of self-identity. When my mum's mum died, she was offered grief counselling and she immediately rejected it because she had instilled in her that poor mental health talking about your emotions was something to be shameful of. A very common POC concept. I have noticed through mainstream media, the narrative of coming to terms with loss and grief is constructed around remembering the loved one that has been lost. I personally believe this narrative is not realistic for many people of colour and or those from working class backgrounds. In this country, I feel medical negligence, which is rooted in racist ideology, has caused many of our loved ones to die before their time. What I mean by this is many immigrant and working class families have to spend so much time to establish financial security for their families at the cost of spending time with their loved ones and being able to tell them their histories and stories. After all, sharing something so emotional and potentially traumatic can exhaust an individual. As a result, a lot of us who grew up with immigrant parents don't know about their lives before they became parents. We just aren't told. 
Of course, this happens with white working class people too. However, the difference there being that they can access documents dating back centuries through databases like Ancestry.com. Whereas if a South Asian or African person tried to do this, it would be very vague due to the amount of tangible data that is not available or may have even been deliberately destroyed. I feel that people of colour have always told our histories through stories and word of mouth, generation to generation. This is the only way to process these things because the modern world has worked against us and attempted to erase our histories, cultures and family ties. Although my mum isn't around anymore, I'm lucky enough to live with my dad and through spending time with him and asking him the right questions, I've been able to learn more about my mum's side of the family and his own family back home in Chittagong through his narratives. His dad passed away when he was only 13, being from a village in the 1960s in Bangladesh. He doesn't have pictures to show me, but he can tell me how he remembers his dad and what other people in his community told him about his dad. Through these stories, I'm able to gauge some sense of what my grandfather must have been like. It's difficult being part of a diaspora for many reasons. I think that grief undoubtedly will affect each individual differently. However, more space should be held for those from diasporic communities as we do not always have the advantage of spending time with family. We might not be able to look fondly at old photographs and our family dynamics are much more community-based. They don't align with the modern notion of a nuclear family. Grief is dealt with differently throughout world cultures and I hope to see a more accommodating change implemented institutionally to aid bereavement and grief within my lifetime. A very powerful letter submitted by Tasneem. Tasneem, thank you so much for taking the time to write that and to share that in the bereavement room with all of our listeners. It was very hard to read that letter um, you know, without bringing my own projections and opinions in. Uh, I resonated with so, so much of it. Uh, a lot of the stories that are passed down um, for our families is by word of mouth and generation to generation. Certainly in my family it has for sure. Uh, and it's very traumatic because our grandparents and parents lived through traumatic times. So it wasn't always easy to approach that conversation I definitely found with my dad. Sometimes he'd want to talk about it and other times it was just, it was too intense. He just didn't want to go there. They they lived through, I believe, what is a much hard, harder time in life. And um, they made a lot of contributions and sacrifices that I think we could we can definitely explore and look at and talk about but we could never possibly understand and I have so so much respect for for that generation for what they have done for us because we do have a lot of access you know (laughs) we we do have a lot of access to resources of course but then these traumas get passed on and we then end up with another subset of our own issues but a very powerful letter and I get that humans you know, the part where, yeah, okay, doctors are humans too, um, but at the end of the day, accountability is very important and doctors get away with not being accountable. It's a perk of the job. And I don't want to gloss over that just because of human error in healthcare. Quite frankly, error should not occur in healthcare regardless. At the end of the day, medics can speak up like our whistleblower did earlier on when I was reading out the comments. She speaks up and I think more people do need to speak up and yeah, you, you it's okay to be angry I think at these medics because they do need to be accountable and I think for me particularly in that letter, I don't know about the rest of you, you can all DM me and write me on at Bereavement Room and Instagram and share your thoughts and feelings but I think that part is particularly triggering because that's just not okay. Yes, as humans, we are all fallible and we all are responsible for the National Health Service, for sure, and we need to not abuse it. But at the same time, where is the accountability? That's what I want to know because 
I've learned from this year that there is no accountability. Your age will definitely matter. Your race and gender will definitely matter. Your faith will, will matter. So, so there's so much unconscious bias within people and individuals not just the education that they've had within medicine and the fact that medicine is so european and they're not used to dealing with ethnic minorities um you know a lot of our medics and health professionals a lot of them are from the diaspora as well and i've had uh, you know my gp is from the diaspora and they they make mistakes sure but i don't think that that should be down to oh well all humans make mistakes Uh, I personally cannot accept that I mean it's really hard to accept that and I just want to share a a personal experience a couple of years ago I had a really good opportunity to go and um, live abroad for a while temporarily because I was posted for a job there but before I went there I needed to have a full medical and I've, I've never I don't even know what that is but full medical is like an MOT right and I was sent for it down in Harley Street in central London. We all know Harley Street, right? It's, you got money, you go to Harley Street. Uh, it's the best of the best. So I went there and got a private full medical because it was paid for. It was about £500. I didn't pay for it. It got reimbursed by the employer that I was going to work with. And um, it was so thorough and so amazing and so you know, it was like the best of the best. And when they discussed the results with me, you know, it was just like, I've never had that experience um, before. And it it was just, you know, it was circumstantial because I was going to start this new job and I couldn't do it without a medical clearance. And of course they picked up on certain things about my bloods and deficiencies. And they were asking me, how are you getting on? Are you tired? Because I, I did have some ill health back then. Um, and I, there is a difference. There's, there is a real difference in comparison to public healthcare versus private. Uh, the treatment and the way they speak to you and the time that they have for you is different. And there is no error there. You'd, you'd be shot to the ground if you made an error in, I'm sure there are errors made in, in private healthcare, but ugh, I think their job is to avoid that because you're, you're paying for it at the end of the day. Um, Whereas within, you know, you've got more choices, you can choose, you've got more support options, you've got more choices, you can choose who you want to speak to, I guess, when you're going private. With the NHS, it is what you you get, you get these 10, 15, 20 minute slots, and people can, you know, they can avoid accountability. So for me, it's really hard to kind of accept that line of, well, humans make mistakes, and I've tried to reach out to a lot of medics this year. So many of them have, so many of them follow me. I don't know if it's because I'm always talking shit about the NHS on social media or if it's because they actually listen to the podcast with interest. Um, but none of them have wanted to come on. I've tried to invite a few, a few from my own community because um, I thought that would be more, I don't know why, I just thought if I invite a Bangladeshi uh medic maybe they'll want to tackle some of these issues with me but it just got blanked and I I don't know why a lot of those medics follow me they're from various backgrounds I don't know Uh, it perhaps they do listen to the podcast with interest to find out what the barriers are and what we're discussing but it's unacceptable that doctors make mistakes you're in a really important job. I get that you're we're humans and you're not perfect. And I feel like I'm repeating myself here, but it's important to reiterate that you're in a very important job role. Very, very important job role. It's so vital that we talk about these errors. It's just not on. And sometimes it just sometimes it will come down to human incompetence. And I have a right to be angry about that. But that letter really reduced me to tears reading it. Um, and it reading that letter, um, yeah, for, we are so busy trying to financially secure ourselves. We don't spend a lot of quality time with family. I can definitely attest to that. And it's had a huge impact on me growing up in my house, for sure, which I know many of our listeners across the diaspora will resonate with because our parents are always at work or working all the hours possible and trying to educate yourself on healthcare and healthy habits and 
what's good and what isn't you know that that's a that's a course in itself um we're not always going to be able to make the right choices because of employment poor housing and other socioeconomic issues i mean within the diaspora it's, it is such a common poc concept right to coin your term it is so common that we don't really talk about our mental health and therapy and i think that there is that is related to shame and stigma but i think also a lot of it is related to lack of education we don't even know what it is i discussed this on another podcast with another bangladeshi podcaster and i and i i spoke with her and i said i don't think we even know what it is because i know sitting where i sit from my personal experience my dad wouldn't have stigmatized me for accessing counseling he just doesn't he he didn't know what it was he wouldn't know you know, if he was alive now, he'd want to know what it is and what the benefits are because he's never heard of it. His generation have never had counselling. Anything bad happens to them, they just take it on the chin and live with it and in, internalise. Um, and that has been somewhat passed on, internalising, that internalising your pain is normal. That's been passed on through generations. And I, I, I don't know how much of it is... I, I, there definitely is some shame and stigmatization there for sure but my family culture is more like lack of awareness lack of education on what the benefits are and that's because my parents you know they were a completely different generation like coming to the UK in the 50s um from Bangladesh like I'd be interested to know do your grandparents even know what therapy is do they even know what mental health support is actually is it really shame or is it they just don't know what it is because they've had to just internalize for so so long anyway that's I mean it's important to reflect on that when we're reading our submissions and our comments and letters um because it's all on the table for grabs so that we can all think about things on a deeper level within our own family systems because it will vary yes we're all from the diaspora but it will vary based on our belief systems and and the way that we do things I you know I feel like I'm rambling but I will always have a deep aversion towards health professionals I don't trust them I've had so many bad experiences and I think it is literally down to the fact of the postcode that I live in the experiences have turned me off the National Health Service so much so that I'm exploring to purchase my own private payment options um I cannot cope with what I've had to deal with over the years it's just like been some vicious cycle and I don't think there's anything to do with could we have done much more I think as a family you know I'm just talking from my own experiences here I think we did the best that we could and it's really hard when yeah, you are having to go to work and juggle all these other responsibilities or if you've got kids or if you can't even articulate what your mental health needs are. That's kind of my reflection on that. Uh, What a wonderful, wonderful letter. Thank you so much for submitting it. It's lots of food for thought there. So that kind of takes us to the end of our letter submission. So that now takes us to the Q&A round. A massive thank you to everyone that submitted questions. I apologise in advance if I don't answer all all of your questions it's just that some of you submitted pretty much similar questions to one another so I've combined them all so the first question is um who is this by is it anonymous uh, okay no this one isn't anonymous so the so this question is submitted by Sabrina hi Colsima I recently started listening to your podcast Thank you for creating this space. My question is slightly outside of the podcast itself. I actually follow you on Twitter and I saw some of the issues you raised around DNA CPR and that sometimes families are pressured into signing it. I also had this experience and it was just awful. Please could you cover this and if you're opening sharing your own experiences of it? Hmm. Ooh, very good question. I don't want to ramble about this because I get really passionate about it. So the DNA CPR stands for Do Not Attempt Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Um, 
but yeah, it's just basically a an action that should be taken or not taken by the healthcare professionals, which includes performing CPR on the person. Um, and it it's related mostly to people that have a cardiac arrest or dies suddenly. So this is guidance for the healthcare professional. Um, I have a lot of issues with this because there are a lot of medics that follow me on socials and they're always talking about DNA CPR and it, it does my head in. I think they're talking about it because they're trying to address an, a more sensitive way of having the conversation that doesn't come across too sciencey or too cold because medics medics are about science let's be real here people they're about science and we families distressed families are about emotion so our decisions are always often emotive i mean not all of us but most of us it will be very emotive when we decide to put in a dna cpr or not it's a very hard decision depending on the context of your situation. My stance on it is that I think there's a lot of pressure and bullying when it comes to having this conversation. Um, my sisters have been bullied and pressured and I, that's partly why they have a real aversion to health professionals because they feel that they were always pressured to sign it and it's always been a really difficult conversation to have with the medic when they decide not to because the medic will pretty much turn their nose at you for making that decision that it was a poor decision and it's the wrong decision and it's the worst decision and you'll regret it for the rest of your life. The other thing is, I'm really sorry, Sabrina, I don't, I don't know what you've been through. Um, you didn't really detail that in your, in your question. I'm sorry that you went through something so awful with DNA CPR and the pressure. And I just want to say to people, you've got to stand your ground. Ask all the questions that you need to ask. But remember, it's you holding the pen, not the medic. And also remember, you don't have to sign it straight away. You can go home and you can talk about it. That's what my sister did with my dad. She goes, the pressure is on to sign it. But of course, my dad recovered from his infection and then later died. Um, she then took the order off. And she goes, I just feel really pressured. Like they're bullying me into signing it. But then they took it off because my dad had recovered. And my, my sisters didn't like that. They didn't like the way that conversation was being na navigated. It was very cold. And it's almost like... The only way to describe DNA CPR, and it's going to sound very vulgar, um, you know when you go into like a shop and a salesperson jumps on you and they really want to sell something to you because they're on commission? That's the only way I can describe DNA CPR. They really jump on you, like they really pressure you to sign it. Weigh up all your pros and cons, because remember everyone's narrative is different from one another, but stand your ground. A medic can't force you to do anything. Even if there is a small percentage of chance that someone can, you know, live and recover, of course you would try. Our decisions are always emotive, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. But it's a case of having many conversations with family about what you want to do. But I hear you, Sabrina, there is... There's like this pressure to to sign something when you don't want to sign it. And it's like the medics can't get over the fact that you've made that decision. Which kind of takes me back to a couple of months back on Twitter. Because they all bloody follow me on Twitter. One of the medics had had a conversation with a family. And she said, I went through all the options and I described everything. And that it wasn't the best case scenario. And that they would regret it if they signed the order. And it and blah 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 but they still went ahead and said you know I don't want to sign this order and I want you to resuscitate the person if the person suddenly dies or goes into an arrest okay so the family made that decision why do you have to jump on twitter and talk about it with all of your medical friends and then they're all discussing you know the ins and out of this per this this family's life how unprofessional once the family has made that decision, you need to let it go and move on to the next family. If you can't let it go, that says to me you didn't have that conversation properly, actually. You didn't cover all the areas and you didn't um, have that conversation sensitively as you think you might have. Just because you approach something with empathy and, and, and sensitiveness doesn't mean a family is going to do what you say. A family will do it based on what they want, 
you just need to let it go. That's kind of my, me having a go at medics there because I get it, it's science and it might do long-term damage or whatever, but can you just accept a family's decision? If you've done your job properly and you've explained all the ins and outs of DNA CPR, can you just not let it go? Like, let it go, move on to the next. Don't bloody go on Twitter and start talking shit about this family, which is, you know, I've seen so much of that over the last couple of months that I'm, I think it's disgraceful. They seem to think that they are, they're so far up on this pedestal that they just think they're bloody Superman. And it really, really irritates me because you're not. Once you've had the conversation, move on. That's all I have to say about DNA CPR. It's a really complex issue. I haven't really given you a clear answer there, but I think it's important that the family does know it does know their rights. Ask all of the questions and remember the pen is in your hand. You're the one signing or not signing. And you can take as long as you need. You don't have to do it there and then. If you've got a good medic in front of you, we'll make that aware. They'll say it. We could be here all day talking about DNA CPR and I have very mixed feelings about it in terms of the way the conversation is addressed and I think medics need to do more to just be better when they're having what is described as a hard conversation with a family. I hope that answers your question. Thank you so much for following me in socials and picking up on that. I really appreciate it. So this, I'm moving on to the next question now. Um, how has the bereavement room helped you grow as a person? This question is submitted by Nick Watt. Hosting bereavement room, right, has given me an opportunity to look at areas of my life I hadn't before. We can easily get bogged down by life, get distracted, which means we make less time for meaningful conversations and seeking truth. So hosting BR gave me time to invest in reflecting more with our guests and listeners. You know, raising certain issues like NHS negligence, which then people start thinking about things that have happened in their own family. So, you know, it's about starting the conversation. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of growth in starting a conversation. So, for example, I definitely understand more of my own mum's experiences since podcasting. And it's a shame, really, because I can't share that with her now that she's no longer here because it really gave me time to reflect on her life and her own uh, struggles. I also think being Muslim, right, we are encouraging our faith to reflect because there is so much power and patience within it. Creating a space like this, I believe, has helped empower me to find answers and tell our truths. I think it's also important to mention here I had already gone undergone uh, extensive reflective listening and processing work which definitely made hosting bereavement room a lot easier for those of you that listened carefully I did spend one year at one of London's best psychotherapy schools and I have volunteered on a very well-known helpline I work in bereavement um I have done a lot of self-reflection, self-awareness, listening activities before coming into this room and hosting. I think my learning mostly comes from taking time to think about my own life and my family's life and also the lives of others where people have different experiences to you. Um, I definitely didn't know much about suicide when I entered the bereavement room. I think I learned more about suicide doing bereavement room than I have in any other capacity. And that's just one one small example. So I feel like there's a little bit of growth and knowledge there about how suicide impacts uh, a family. So the next question, it's another one from Nick Watt. Thank you very much. Uh, So what is the one law that you want to see enacted to better help those impacted by bereavement well that's easy statutory bereavement leave it's like you read my mind when you decided to ask me this question 
Uh, You know how I feel about it, right? We've exhausted this conversation so much on the podcast. And to put it frankly, if this law was in place, it would help eliminate life's pressures, stresses, gives us the time and peace we deserve to navigate loss in the way it deserves, spending quality time with family. Um, Working in bereavement, I definitely hear far too often of poor mental health and what is a sufficient enough time off for a bereaved employee. Well, how long is a piece of string? If the law is in place, it means we don't have to conclude to how empathetic a manager is. It also means the inequity within the workplace and double standards are eliminated somewhat because it's not one rule for one and one rule for another. For example, senior members of staff or more likable staff getting more time off in comparison to staff that are less so senior or less liked with less options for time off. And it's Again, it's harder uh, to navigate the conversation um, if you are probably less senior or not very popular in the workplace. Because uh, we know, as we know it, if you've been working in the work sphere, the nine to five, whatever you do, there's a lot of politics, particularly in the office, there's a lot of office politics that will come into play when it comes to compassionate leave. This also includes discrimination towards POC working in white dominated structures where they are likely to be taken advantage of. And I don't need to sit here and give you examples because we've talked about it on and off with so many different podcast guests where they've been taken advantage of um, and uh, didn't get any leave. I believe James was one of them. Um, He talked about that in quite a lot of detail in his episode when he went back to work uh, about his bereavements. He didn't get any bloody time off. And I I think that me and him concluded that was a race issue, really. Um, So, yeah, shout out to James. Um, No wonder he's got his own business and doing his own thing because who wants to put up with that in the workplace, right? So... I don't blame people for going off and doing their own thing. This is also something that um, Linda and I had talked about. So Linda was a guest in series one and she's also my friend because I used to work with her. So if Linda, if you're listening, shout outs to you. Um, She also talked about it. There were a lot more black women starting up their own businesses because of the bullshit that they have to put up with in the office nine to five. And um, I totally get it. And I don't blame people for that so yeah you know discrimination towards POC working in these white dominated structures they are always taken advantage of and they have a lot less support options available to them because their manager is likely to be white by the name of Karen or Annabelle or Molly or Polly or Golly or Smith or John anyway that's enough uh, jesting from me once that law is enacted, it just means that um, people have more options. It means people are secure and there's just a little bit more equity. And, you know, one day off is just not sufficient, is it? It's not acceptable. Uh, I believe Sue Ryder have got a campaign for statutory bereavement leave. If you haven't signed it, go check it out on Sue Ryder website. And also we have Jack's Law in place. So I can definitely see that if we're going to be positive vibes here that I can see that change is coming it's definitely coming it wouldn't surprise me if this law comes into place within the next 10 years because look at the times that we're living in there there's the, the mental health is just off the roof it really is uh, and things have got to change and people are going to be bereaved more now particularly with this coronavirus there's just going to be a lot more deaths so people are going to need to time off so the government needs to put a law in place to ensure that people do get that time off oh i rambled there a little bit what's the next question i'm just scrolling along uh this one's anonymous okay so how do you make people comfortable in the bereavement room is there a is there a specific format or structure you use? Oh, I like this question. Someone else asked me this question. Actually, it was on Bengalis of New York podcast when I appeared. Uh, Nisha actually asked me that question. And I 
some other people have also asked me that question. Who was it? I can't remember now. But yeah, I, I often get asked, how do I make people feel comfortable? Um, well, look, every guest episode is produced based on their narrative and experience, right? So briefs are produced and sent out by me and they're very thorough with room for flexibility so that guests have freedom to speak and contribute and input into the brief. And it's really simple and I've said it time and time again. Listening is the biggest gift you can give to someone grieving. You can't fix or rescue. The person we love isn't coming back. So your job, and your only job, is to show up and listen. I don't want to call it a tactic, but I've learned a lot in my own grief that most grievers just want someone to listen and walk with their pain. Too often we respond with the, atten- with the intent to reply, not with the intent to listen and hold space. That isn't about us and our projections and opinions. You know, it's turning the attention away from yourself toward the other. So I did actually a short induction on the levels of listening when I began my bereavement career, right? And there are many levels to it. There's ignoring, there's passive, there's active, there's selective. Yes, who would have thought? Listening is the whole entire course. Generally, as humans, our listening skills are very poor. I am by no means saying that I am the world's best listener, but I have invested in my listening skills. I listen to my guests, I mirror, I reflect and I choose my timing of interjection as carefully and as realistically as I can. Because guess what? When you listen and interject at the right times and reflect with your guests, you watch people open up and tell their stories. And then that's why people are like, it was so healing. It was, you know, a judgment free space. Why? Because I'm listening. That's why. I mean, I'm not imposing my own shit on you. That's the reason. And I'm asking reflective questions. So then automatically a guest will be in the thick of it when they're sharing their experience that you will not want to interrupt them because they're like in the zone. And also I want my guests to get something out of this. If it feels healing and judgment free, then my way of facilitating and producing BR and making people feel comfortable to speak works. Listening, mirroring, paraphrasing, reflecting, interjecting, taking the attention away from you, it bloody works. And it's as simple as that, but is it actually really that simple? I'm going to give you a few suggestions very, very shortly, because at the same time, there is also an element of my guests don't know me. And it's a fact of life. When someone doesn't know you, you're likely to care less what that person thinks. We tend to speak more openly with people that know nothing about us, because for some reason, it seems easier sometimes. But I just want to say before I offer the suggestions, uh, let's normalise sitting down with one another and having meaningful conversations about the hard stuff, which is actually a part of our existence in this life, to be frank. When we do that, people will feel comfortable to speak. I do want to emphasise a lot of production work goes into BR. You have to think about the questions you're going to ask each guest, as we aren't all the same and we come from different walks of life, even if there are some shared similarities. Not everyone's narratives are the same. We all live it differently. So the suggested ways to improve listening. This is just based on my own experiences. Um, You know, I don't like to give advice, but if you want suggestions, which I feel like this is where we're at in this question, uh, make time for reflection in your environments. Volunteer your time. Helplines are a good way to improve your listening skills. Join a support group or even create one yourself with the intention of listening and asking reflective questions. And that's it. That's all I do to make people feel comfortable, to make it a stress-free environment because bereavement room is about reflecting, you know, that that's the whole ethos of bereavement room. So I I need people to be comfortable. Otherwise, this conversation is not going to roll in the way that I want it to. And it has to benefit the guest as well. So that's really important. We have to take that into consideration too. Right, next question. Oh, I'm getting a bit tired. I need a drink of water. How do you manage your emotions hosting bereavement room? 
Okay. Um, right. What I want to say about emotions is that they just are there. They just are. There is no negative or there is no positive. It just is as they are. You don't go through life without stumbling or, you know, going through some kind of hardship. That's the whole point. I'm comfortable with being uncomfortable because I have lots of experience of it. Uh, I'm someone that enjoys group process. I definitely enjoyed that in my year at London's best psychotherapy school. (laughs) Um, That was my favourite part, I think. I got so much from that that I found my voice. Um, I I let myself just be as as human as I can, you know, even as the host and producer of Bereavement Room, I won't always get things right. I think I just manage by being my authentic self. Uh, There is an element of I am at an age where I care less what people think of me. I think particularly if you're in your teens and your young adult years and your 20s especially, what people think of you really matters, even if people don't want to admit that. There's just too much pressure. And I'm not in my 20s. I'm a, lo- a little bit older. So to kind of answer that question, you know, just be yourself, be your authentic self, because like, who are you hurting by being your authentic self? I guess it's a vulnerable state to be in, isn't it? And it probably takes experience, actually, to kind of get comfortable with being vulnerable even I can put my hand up and say that hasn't always been easy for me in the past it got easier when I you know did things like going to a psychotherapy school for a year and working through that it got easier when I changed my career it got easier over time after experiencing you know horrible things in life um and also therapy really helps me as well and journaling so there's there's lots of different ways that I manage my emotions. Hosting the podcast. Um, that's not to say that I haven't cried. I did full on cry in someone's episode in series one. And I had to cut a lot of it out. But I'm not going to say whose episode that was. Because you're all going to do a rewind on me. Um, but yeah, I did full on cry in this person's episode. Because she was saying something. I don't know. She was just, I was so engaged in something she was saying. And it just triggered me off into a, a massive bloody wailing. Um, but what I would say about that is there's there's nothing wrong with that. I There's nothing wrong with crying or being angry. You know, I've had lots of moments where I've had been on the podcast with Lekhani, for example, who's a former guest. And we've just had moments of just letting off steam and being angry. And, uh, uh, you know, it's not so much about managing emotions, I guess. I think it's just more about being human being kind to yourself, giving yourself a break, a day off, and being authentic, just being yourself unapologetically. And I think that I am, because I could care less, really, what anyone thinks of me. Uh, So where are we now? What are the next questions? Right, so I think this is the final question that I'm going to answer. So I'm getting a little bit tired. Um... And New Year's Eve is just around the corner and I want to get this episode out. Um, This final question is, again, this is an anonymous one. They don't want their name read out. That's fine. Right, so this is the final question before we move on to a, a few reflections and close. What is the last episode of Bereavement Room? What have you found most difficult in the bereavement room? Okay, um, I hope I understand your question. I, I I guess what you mean is what has been difficult for me podcasting or sitting here listening to an array of guests share their experiences with me. Um, what have I found most difficult? And you know this isn't scripted because I'm, I'm having to think about it out loud. I need to think about that. I guess what comes to mind is that when you're parking your own stuff, you know, that's a great level of skill, parking your own projections and your own opinions, because a lot of life, we're just always projecting. If you don't know that, you know it now, we're always projecting. Um, Because I've had such poor experiences of healthcare, you know, I can't sit there and say, the nurses were great, the doctors were great, I have to say they were brilliant. Uh, They were like family to me. I think that part I struggle with the most when I have to hear those narratives 
because you do kind of, you know, I have sort of said to myself, oh, they had a good experience with health care. Why didn't my family have a good experience? Why didn't we have nurses that were like family? And so you kind of sit there and you think, well, why not you? Why not me? And I think I found that probably the most difficult part because listening to people share their experiences, uh, because everyone does have different experiences and good for you if you have had nurses that are like family and good doctors and good consultants and great people um, externally that you've accessed. Good for you and that's how it should be. But I've had to do a lot of deep reflecting on that because I'm going to lie, that has upset me. And I just have thought, well, why not me? Why not my family? And then I have to go back to things like postcode and where I live and, you know, all of that stuff. Um, it's nothing me and my family have done. It's it's just where we are based. And then the other one is, you know, hearing even some of your own friends say, well, my manager's great and I got great compassionate leave, etc., etc. And then you just think, well, why did I get one day off? Why was my employer so crap? And so those are the things that I found really difficult because... Although I didn't say that out loud on the podcast, that's something that I've probably reflected on after um, when I listen back to the conversation and edit it. Um, and I just think, oh, well, why didn't I get several weeks off? And you just start to feel really not seen. And um, But then I remember, then I have to kind of remind myself, I guess, that it's okay, that's how it should be, that's what you want for people, that you can't help but think, oh, this is hard, this is actually really hard to listen to, because it seems like they got a lot of support um, in this area, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, so that's what I found most difficult to answer your question, thank you for submitting that to the the anonymous listener, their name is anonymous listener, thank you. So I think that brings us to the end of our Q&A. Uh, a, a massive thank you. I've really enjoyed that. I love doing Q&As. That was fun. Maybe I should do a live one in the next series. That could be cool. Where it's where I'm like on the spot trying to answer. So finally, I, I want to reflect that sitting in the host seat, holding space and also telling my own story, I am representing the people. The people that don't often get heard or amplified as much as our white counterparts. This year flagged up the impact of microaggressions, systemic racism, unconscious bias on minoritized communities. I do feel people are late to the party. It's because an unjust murder happened across the pond and everyone suddenly flocked to bereavement room because it's a multi-ethnic space. Where were you before? I still ask that question in my mind. Where were you before? I've been in this room for ages and now you're all suddenly black and brown this and black and brown that for all of maybe two weeks. And then there's those that are desperate to hide the flaws in their organisations with tokenism and tick boxes. For those of you that follow me on the IG, you've seen me get angry about it. I'm tired of that. But I've also learned, I think, from that that I need to park that upset because it's it's not doing me any good. It's not good for my energy. So it's time to move on from those that are trying to cover up their flaws with tokenism and tick boxes. It has been an incredibly hard year for so many of us. It's okay to sit with that. We don't always have to find a silver lining, which surprisingly I'm going to reveal in the gratefulness challenge, this didn't pop up. I want to reiterate, gratefulness is not about silver linings. You can equally talk about what you're not grateful for. And funnily enough, that just didn't happen. I was waiting for it. I was waiting for a guest to say that. I slightly covered that off in Nick Watts' episode where I was like, sometimes I'm grateful for a bus coming along, you know. Um, It's okay. You don't have to always find the silver lining for anything. And that's not why I hosted the Gratefulness Challenge at the end of every episode. It's a nice way to round things off. But for me... It was more to kind of see where people are at, what's important to people, but also to give them an opportunity to maybe do shout outs, talk about their family and friends, or just reflect on on something that is personal and important to them. 
And I and I want to say a massive thank you to everyone that did take part in the Gratefulness Challenge. I'm going to continue that on to the next series next year because I, I do think there's a lot of value in the Gratefulness Challenge. But now that I've revealed that little secret that we don't always need to find a silver lining, you can equally talk about what you're not grateful for. So let's see if that happens in series three. <laughs> As the year ends, I think about my dad. This is the year I saw and spoke to him last. This is the year he died. It's sort of hard to say goodbye to that and enter another year. I didn't see it coming at all. I know I'm not alone in this and many of you will be feeling this pain too. So now it's time to really rest. Not take breaks here and there, but really just slow down. Join me in this rest. I'll catch you back here in the same room in the summer of 2021 with a series free. So until then, take good care of yourself. As always, thank you so much for listening. I am your host, Kulsuma Ali. To stay in touch with Bereavement Room, you can find me over on Instagram and Twitter. The handle is at Bereavement Room. It also makes a huge difference if you're listening in Apple Podcast app because it means you can leave a star rating and review. I hope that Bereavement Room has brought insight, knowledge, reflection, love and light to wherever you are in your journey.